morning, church. So the mighty sequoia trees of Northern California stand about 25 stories tall. That means they stretch about 250 feet into the air before they kiss the sky. Their canopy hanging over the forest floor like a beautiful cathedral. These things are monsters. Their, their trunks are huge. Their bark is three feet thick and fire retardant. These trees are magnificent. Many of them date over 1,500 years old. That stretches back to the time of the Roman Empire. And to give you some perspective on the size of these trees, we got a picture here. And these two guys aren't little fairies from the old movie Epic. These are mountain climbers turned tree climbers. And they're hanging out about 75 feet in the air. It's nuts. The, the branches on the sequoia tree are bigger than most trees we have around here. These trees are enormous. And it makes you wonder, how? How have they grown for so long and withstood everything that's come their way? The snow, the wind, the earthquakes, the fire, everything. Everything that nature would throw them. How have they withstood us? 15 centuries, some of the oldest living organisms on earth. How have they stood the test of time? Well, surprisingly, it's not because their root system is incredibly deep. That's important for a lot of plants and trees. But the sequoia's root system is actually really, really wide. And the sequoia's roots intermingle with the roots of the other sequoias around it. You'll never find a sequoia growing in isolation, growing alone, because they're not designed to exist that way. It would topple over. It's actually this incredibly wide intermingled root system that gives it strength to match its enormous size to help keep it up. In effect, the sequoia trees hold one another up. That's how they are. They would topple over if not in community. They are designed to grow in community. Huh. Seems like maybe God has a message for us in that. Because that's how he designed us. We are created by God to thrive in community. Kind of like the great sequoia trees. And when we find the right community, it'll change our lives. I mean, that's how the story began. That's where it all begins. It's back in the garden. God creating everything. God himself, who is perfect community, Father, Son, Spirit. And, and this three-in-one God says, let's, let's have some fun. Let's make something. And, and God creates everything we know. He creates the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars and the skies and the winds and the rainbows and, and all the beauty. And, he, and God has a sense of humor and he shows it off during his creation. He makes narwhals and duck-billed platypus and things like that. And, you know, goofy-looking people like me. And he just, he's like, oh, you know, and, and God shows his humor there and he makes. And God, after each thing he makes, says, oh, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. And then God gets to the pinnacle of his creation. And he makes humans. He makes Adam, the first man. In his own image, he makes him. And then there's this striking break in the story. After everything he's made, God says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Man, oh, that's not good. And, and what strikes me about this, what, what, what just hits us in the face as we read this afresh is that there's no sin in the picture. That there's no fall yet. Things are as they're supposed to be. Adam has perfect relationship with God. 
with creation, with nature, with himself. There's no disruption there. It's as God designed it to be, and yet God says, but that's not good. We, we read that in the text. The Lord God looks at him and says, it's not good for the man to be alone. He's not supposed to stand alone. And so God created woman, and for eons since, every guy has said, thanks, God, we appreciate that. That makes life better. Thanks for creating women. And God looks at this and says, now this, this is the way it's supposed to be. This togetherness, this community, this community of people, this is how it's supposed to be. And God looks at that and says, now that, that's very good. Adam's not to be alone. And, And God doesn't just leave it at that. He doesn't just say, okay, now you two have each other and that's good enough. He says, no, 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 I want you to do something more. And God gives them this command. We read in the Genesis creation narrative that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He made them both in his own image. And then God blessed them and listened to the blessing. He blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. Be fruitful, multiply, increase in number. Go, make community. And we see when we get to the end of the story in the book of Revelation how this was supposed to end up, how it will end up when it all plays out at the end of time. We see cities and streets and community and people. That's the way it was supposed to go. People together making community. This is God's creation made it. This is his community made it. Like go and be fruitful and make community. It goes way past marriage and family. This is God's instruction for us to create this togetherness concept and fill the world and enjoy it. But then we see early in the story, we don't have to move very far in before we see that there's disruption to all that God had made and the way God had made it to be. You don't have to move very far in before sin enters the picture and disrupts everything. The serpent, the fruit, the bite, the break, the sin, the disruption. And sin, that's what it does. It disrupts relationship. It disrupts community. There's this breakage, this disruption in our relationship between humans and God, between humans and one another, between humans and nature. I mean, just think mosquitoes and spiders and alligators and disruption. Like we don't have peace with the world around us. And there's even a disruption between ourselves. We, we don't have the relationship we're supposed to have within. Anger and pride and, and shame, jealousy, greed, murder, hatred, lust, all these things, they, they push us apart from one another and they tear us apart as individuals. O- over the last 20 years, the research has shown again and again and again, Americans are the loneliest people on the planet. We, we whether single, married, or somewhere in between, are just lonely. And it creates this disruption. Even when we're in the presence of other people, many people report feeling this pervasive sense of aloneness, separateness, disconnection. And we can be with people that, that we know and like and still feel lonely. There's this weird loneliness to us. And, and it goes without saying, but the pandemic certainly hasn't helped that at all. 
It's only exacerbated. It only made it worse for so many people, this feeling of, of disrupted relationship, disconnected community. But the good news is God made us for something better than this isolation, this aloneness, this crowded aloneness that we might feel. God made us to thrive in community, and I would argue that the right community, well, it'll change your life. I mean, that's the story we see in Scripture. And we know this. We know this to be true. That's why we long for community. We, we feel it in our gut, and we seek it out everywhere we go. We try to find community that will help us, whether work or school, with friends or family, social media, wherever we go, the bars, the gyms, wherever you might be trying to seek out community with your hobbies and your spare time and your neighbors, wherever it might be, we search for community. And some of us, we need different levels of community. We need different amounts of community. We, we all need interaction with others. Some of us, or some of you might be wired like me. You, you desire more connection points in your community. I, I'm highly relational. That's why you'll find me hanging out in the lobby before service, after service, shaking hands, talking to people. I get energized. It feeds my soul to interact with other people. But some of my closest friends, they're like the opposite end of that spectrum. I'm like an extreme extrovert. Some of them, even a few of the guys in my small group are more on the introvert scale. And so if they hang out with people like I am, or if they hang around with too many fits for too long, they just need a nap, and they're going to call it, like, tap out, got to go home, right? <laughs> it just wears them out. And that's okay. It's not right, wrong, good, bad. It's just different. We're wired up a little bit differently. Some people need a little bit more connection than others, but we all need some level of connection, at least with a few. And so what that means is it's not wrong. It's not a sin if you have a desire to only connect with a few. Like you're not less spiritual if you desire to kind of keep your distance from most people. And you're not necessarily a bad person. You're not necessarily shallow if you desire to connect with lots of people. You're just wired up that way. But we all need connection. And God created us that way. He made us for connection with other people. And we find the right kind of community with those connections. That'll change our lives. It's the really good news of Scripture. Even in the midst of the mess, the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a world gone crazy with tearing us apart, I mean, it doesn't matter the topic. It used to be like sports and politics, but politics and sports have even gone nuts with this, where politics has entered into sports, and I mean, and, and sports has entered into politics, and you can't talk about anything and have people on the same page. I mean, we're all just... And so even in the midst of this broken, disrupted communal relationship thing that's not working the way it's supposed to, in the midst of that world, God enters in and continues to do what he's always done, to restore community and rebuild community and connect us back to him and one another, the way he designed us to be, the way he designed us to be at our best. God is continuing at work to restore relationship. That was the point of the cross. I mean, Jesus entered into all this mess, paid the penalty our sins deserve on a cross to close that gap and restore us to relationship with God, to close the gap between God and humanity. And the cross is an invitation to salvation, an invitation to restored relationship with a loving God. But it's not just that. Like, if that's the only picture you have of the cross, if that's the only picture you have of Christianity is, it's your get-out-of-hell ticket 
to get into heaven. That, that Jesus came so we get into heaven. Like, it's, it's, you're missing so much. And that's a part of the story. It's a really big part of the story. But it's not the whole story. That the cross is not only an invitation to salvation. It's an invitation to participation. To active participation with meaning and purpose in the kingdom community. In this community that God has created us to experience. Community with one another. Where we experience the joy and the peace of being part of his kingdom community. But we're also living on mission to advance his kingdom. And invite everyone else into it. That's what God has for us. That's the fuller picture of the cross. Salvation with participation. And so we have this picture. And throughout the New Testament, we see these glimpses of the way it's supposed to look. We see the way it's supposed to be. God shows us, scattered throughout the New Testament with this word, one another. Now, I know, I know, one another is two words. I'm not that dumb. But in the Greek, it's one word, all right? So we have this, this one word in the Greek that translated to English means one another. The word in Greek is alelone. Everybody, I want you to say that with me. Even those of you online, even if you got people sitting around you, even if you have somebody kind of like dozing off, it's probably good you say it out loud. So let's all say alelone. Alelone. All right, let's do it one more time. Alelone. All right, there's your Greek lesson of the month, all right? <laughs> so now you can say, I know a word from a different language. Alelone. Alelon simply means one another. That's what it means. It's this picture of togetherness, a picture of community, a picture of how God designed us to be with one another. And this word shows up 100 times in 94 different verses scattered throughout the New Testament. 13 of those times, it, it's found in the context of loving one another. The first time, John 13, Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, shows them love. It's where we... Uh, see Jesus in the last meal where communion comes from for us. Jesus says, I give you a new command to love one another. The way I've loved you, now you love one another. The world will know that you follow me if you love one another. Like all the other one another's, just give us an understanding of what it looks like to love one another. It's a pretty big deal. For those of you who've been around here for a while, you might remember that about a year and a half ago, we began the year 2020 looking at these phrases, some of these phrases, one another's in the New Testament, in a series we called We Over Me, looking at what it looks like to live in community instead of being isolated. Now, in case you have a little bit of shock from that, a little bit of trepidation, yes, we did that series, and right at the end of that series, we entered into a pandemic and everything shut down. We're hoping this doesn't go that same way today, all right? So we're just going to trust that God has something different for us this time. But I'm going to read for you some of those one another statements. It's a long list, so bear with me. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Time out. All right. So in scripture, context is key, right? Like these phrases that show up in context in scripture, we, we know that sometimes there's a cultural application of that, right? So the great one other with a holy kiss is, you know, let's, you know, when you enter into church on a Sunday morning, when you show up to a small group, when you hang out with your Christian friends, typically a handshake, a man pat, a fist bump, a high five, a hi, a little wave, a smile, that's probably all you need. You don't need to go smooching when you say hi to each another. You know, on your way into church, on your way out of church, you don't have to greet one another with an 
right? It's just going to be a little weird, right? That's not the community most people want to be part of and the ones that do, well, we just got to have a different kind of conversation with them. But I will offer this to anybody who lives in a family, in a family setting. If you're married, if you have kids, this is a really good one to put into context that every time you enter into the door of your home, greet one another with a holy kiss. Not just a, hey, baby, kind of kiss. No, not just a, hey, love you kind of kiss. Or I don't even know where that was going, right? But, just, but greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, as long as it's a family member, right? If you got somebody else over, you got somebody over, the bug man is there, no holy kissing, all right? So like, keep it reserved for the people in your family. Context, let's get back to it before I derail any further. Agree with one another, wait for one another, have equal concern for one another, serve one another, don't provoke or envy one another, carry one another's burdens, bear with one another, be compassionate to one another, forgive one another, speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, unless you can't carry a tune in a basket, then just keep to the psalms and read to each other. Submit to one another, don't lie to one another, encourage one another, build one another up, spur one another on toward love and good deeds, keep meeting with one another, don't slander one another, offer hospitality to one another, be humble to one another, be kind to one another. Don't grumble against one another. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. That is a long list. Whew, gotta catch my breath. But you get the picture? You starting to see that spark your imagination of what it's supposed to look like when we do this a lay alone one another thing in the church? I'm gonna imagine if that were the kind of community that we all got to experience all the time here and wherever we gather. I mean, isn't that what the world longs for? Is that what we long for? A community like that. I mean, that's the kind of community God has for us. It's what he's calling us to be part of. Now, you might remember, we're in this series called Next. We're talking about some of the most important next steps we can take in our journey of faith. And I would contend that one of the most important ones is that we, alone, that we one another with each other. But remember, to experience all that Jesus has for us, to experience all the joy of that kind of community, it's going to require some effort from us so that God can do a work in us and work through us. And God wants to give us something, but it requires that we also partner with him to help create that one another kind of community. For us to experience the alone community, we have to be participants in actively working to create the alone community. But I contend still that being part of the right community It's going to change your life. And because of that, I'm going to encourage you to join a group. Join a small group. Here at OCC, grouping is one of the key ways we practice the alone kind of life. It's where we encourage people that, that you're only going to get so much from sitting in rows on a Sunday morning. Wherever that environment is. If you're sitting in rows, it's only going to go so far. And we believe this is really important. We worship together. We sing with one another. We, we pray with one another. We experience communion with one another. We unpack God's word with one another. And we hope that our Sunday morning experience is meaningful for you, that it helps you move forward in your journey with Jesus. But this isn't, like, this is the end all. In fact, this is like the, the prepping ground. And, and, and that's why our, our small groups are so important. We utilize a sermon-based small group strategy where we take what we've done on Sunday morning and then we unpack that together with each other in our groups to say, all right, I was struggling with this part. I wasn't sure about that or help me listen to the, you know, and we just start figuring out with each other the encouragement, the accountability, the deeper understanding. That's why small groups are so important. That's why they're 
vital. They provide the environment for us to take what we've done here and apply it. Now, in case you're thinking small groups are like this new thing, you know, maybe you're just aware enough of recent church history to know that like 20 some years ago, Rick Warren out at Saddleback Church in California was like, man, we're doing all this small group thing and they kind of caught wind and, you know, Willow Creek up in Chicago was doing this small group thing. And maybe you think it's a new thing. I want to tell you, Heibels and Ortberg and, and Rick Warren and those guys who were doing the group thing, they were just taking their cue from John Wesley and those guys a couple hundred years ago who were doing this group thing. And they were just taking their cue from a handful of guys a few hundred years before them who were just taking their cue from people who were taking their cue from Jesus. That was the Jesus picture. Jesus had a small group of 12 guys. And they wandered around. And you'll remember, Jesus taught to crowds, to multitudes, to the masses. Jesus would teach in this large setting. And then he would take his group and they'd get alone on the side. And the guys in his group, the disciples would say, hey, all that stuff you just taught, what were you talking about? That doesn't make sense. How many understand? Jeez, what? You know, and then none of it made sense to him at first. I'm like, oh, wait, what were you? I don't, I don't get what you were saying, Jesus. Help us understand. And so Jesus would teach to the crowd. They'd unpack it in a small group. Jesus would teach to the crowd. They'd unpack it in a small group. That's the way we saw the early church do it. The early church met together in large settings like this, the temple courts. They met together in the large settings. And they would have teaching and they would unpack the word. And they would talk about Jesus. And then they would go to their homes. And they would have these smaller groups that met in homes where they would explore it to the next level. And they'd live out the one another, a lay alone community in that context. So it's not a new thing. It's actually a very old thing. Seems to be, as I read scripture, a God thing. And I know some of the arguments against it. I know what the reservations, maybe not an argument, but what just keeps some of us from grouping I know some people say, well, I, I can't group because I'm too busy. I've just got too much going on, and I get it. We have a ridiculously busy culture to the point where we almost pride ourselves on our busyness. So to speak into that, I just will say, if, if you've got too much going on that you can't squeeze in vital relationships with other people who are following Jesus, who want to encourage you to follow him more closely and share life with you, you're right. You are way too busy. Like you need to reorient your schedule to reprioritize and you need to make sure you have space and you create margin to fit in the right kinds of connections. So friend, you're too busy not to group. Like we need this a lay alone community. And some of you are saying, yeah, I get that, but it's not my schedule. It's my kids. like games and sports and practices and this and that and all their hobbies and all the other stuff. So I just want to remind you, if you're in charge of the kids, they're going to take their cue from you how to do life. They're going to take their cue from you on what's important and what matters most. And if you are submitting your life and your development and their spiritual development to the whims of their schedule, how's that going to play out for them? in the coming years and decades. You are the one and the place to show them that their spiritual connection to others is one of the most vital things they have. And I know the challenges with this. I've got three kids. And we've got three different schedules with them. And man, we bump up against this all the time. But we will fight viciously to guard our calendar so that our kids can be connected 
to other students in our student ministry, to the life of this church, to mentors and other people who can speak into them. And so that our kids know that mom and dad are not going to compromise on group time. That that's one of the best things for us. It's one of the things that has propelled our faith forward. And regardless of my position, I need that. And I want my kids to see that. And I want them to know how much that matters to me. Now, some of you, you might be thinking, well, it's not my kid's schedule. It's just the fact that I got kids and they're little and like babysitting. Here's what I want you to know. We have grouping options that will take care of those child care needs. So whatever your concerns are, it's all right. We, we got it taken care of. Don't let kids stand in the way of grouping. Now, some of you, you're like, yeah, it's not my schedule that keeps me from it. I just didn't want to group because it's a little too personal. Like, you know, they might ask me to unpack the stuff in the closet, like open up that, you know, closet door where the skeletons are. And like, I don't want to go there and I just want to leave that thing closed. Or maybe they just want to get to know me at another level and I, I got enough connections. You know, I'm not the Lego board. I'm like the, the three little pronged Lego or four little pronged Lego. I've, I've got enough connections already. I don't need anybody else to know my stuff. But here's the reality. There's somebody else who doesn't want anybody else to know your stuff. His name is Satan, the devil, your enemy. Jesus' friend Peter tells us this. He says, be alert and of sober mind because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You know how lions stalk their prey? You know how they end up getting their prey? They do what every predator does. Every predator seeks to isolate its prey, to get one all alone. Just watch Animal Planet or the old National Geographic. You watch the lion stalk the gazelles, and it's going to go after the one that's kind of the ditzy one. that wanders off by itself. And the one that wanders off, the one that kind of takes the wrong turn, the one that's just lagging in the back, is the one that gets chomped. Like the one that strays from the pack, the one that's not in the alone community, but the one that's standing alone is the one that, you know, that's when the blood and gore and all that. Like some of you want to turn the channel off at that point. Like that's when the nastiness happens. And that's exactly what Satan wants to do to us. And that's when the enemy comes, is when we stand alone. The message we get from this world, and it's this weird message. It's kind of like, oh, let's all be together, but be together doing your own thing and defend yourself. And like, you're number one. Look out for number one. Always look out for yourself. Do what you feel right and do what makes you happy. And so we get this message from the world that we should look out for ourselves, that we should stand alone and be our own person. Here's the problem with that. When you're looking out for you, you don't have a whole lot of time to look out for the other people. And if you do, you tend to look out for them only to the point that it doesn't impede on you looking out for you. And that's true of you, but that's also true of all of them. So when you're looking out for number one, when you're looking out for yourself and everybody else is too, then who else is looking out for you? Really not too many. The world tells us stand alone, and that just is... A terrible way to do it because Jesus says, no, 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 don't stand alone. Stand alone. Stand together in community, one another. Because when you are in that kind of community, when you're in the Christ-following community, you want to know how many people are looking out for you? You want to know how many people have your back? Look around. You get an army. Because when we all live that way, we don't have to look out for ourselves because everybody else is looking out for us. They're looking out for our best interests. They're carrying our burdens. They're praying for us. They're spurring us on. They're bringing us comfort. They're challenging us when we start to wander off and step into stupid. And they bring us back. 
Then we have people who look out for us and look out for our best interests. That's the alone community. The world says stand alone. No, stand alone. Because when we miss that central part of the alone community and we're alone, we're hosed. And that's when the enemy's got us. <clears throat> My son has enjoyed football for a few years. And this year we decided to let him start playing officially. So suiting up, wearing the pants, wearing the helmet, getting to hit people, getting to take some hits. And uh, got any football fans in the room? It is football season, right? Any football fans? High school, college, pro. All right, we got a few of you. So I love football. I never really got to play. I played the Sandlot version, uh, which is not with helmets and stuff. So you end up with a few more scars to take through the rest of your life. But one of my favorite things, and it's the most underrated thing of football, is the blocking. Because that's really what it comes down to. Like those of you who are football fans, you're never going to see a good coach put his athlete, just one of them, lined up on the field alone against the other 11. It's not going to happen. You're not going to put one football player out there, uh-oh. I mean, it's just dead meat, right? That's like, not going to happen. We need to line that team up. The blocking is crucial for the offensive line to protect the quarterback, for the other athletes to protect the running backs, to protect the receivers when they're getting the ball. And I love watching, you know, the guys running down the field, and then here comes the defender coming up to get them, and then a teammate comes up and just boom, just lays them out. And not on my watch, you get my teammate. They just level that person onto the ground. There's something fun about that. Sorry, that might be a little carnal and barbaric for some of you, but I think there's a picture there of how we're supposed to do life. God doesn't want us to line up alone across from the enemy. God wants us running blocks for each other, taking care of each other, running point. God wants us throwing blocks, blocking against shame and guilt and sin and temptation and trials of life. Like you don't have to go through it alone. I'm running point for you. I'm throwing blocks for you. Let's go. Let's do this thing together. And when we do get tripped up, when we do lay down on the ground, when we do get hit and we're knocked down, then the teammate grabs a hand, pulls you up, dusts you off, and says, let's keep going. Let's keep marching down this field. That's the picture God has for us, that we would not do this thing alone, but that we would do it in community. Friend, if you think getting in a group is too personal, let me tell you, we all need personal attention. Every single one of us needs those people in our life who are running blocks for us. And helping us move forward in our faith. This is the reason that whenever it comes to my knowledge that we've got somebody in the church who's hurting, who's grieving, who's going through a difficult season. One of the first questions I ask is, who's in their group? Who's in their community? Who's going to rally around them? Because I know it means something to, to hear a sorrowful message. To get a card from the, from the lead minister to, to hear from somebody like me. But I know it's way more meaningful when the people you are journeying through life with rally around you. And I know how troubling it is when we find out that there's somebody hurting or going through a difficult season and they don't have anyone and they're alone. Because God did not design us to be that way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian during World War II during the time of the Nazis leading Germany. He, he was a a preacher and a theologian, he was arrested for helping the Jewish people. He was thrown into a concentration camp, a prison camp, later killed for his faith by the Nazis. 
Bonhoeffer said this. He said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws the person from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. I want you to hear that last part again. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. God doesn't want us to be isolated. He didn't create us for that. We need a lay loan. Now, I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but grouping's uncomfortable. I'm, I might be grouped up with people who are just different from me. I don't know about this. Like, I don't mind being personal, but like, what if we have different views on politics? We have different views on, you know, all the stuff going on in the world. We like different interests, different sports teams, or different hobbies, or we have different incomes. We just do life differently. And I get it. That could be kind of weird. There is a little bit of getting through that uncomfortable. And I just want to assure you, like, you don't have to be wired up the same. In my group, we have introverts and extroverts. And if you're an introvert and you don't want to be with extroverts, like, we have grouping options even for that. And we'll find that, yeah, we're, even when we think we are similar to the people, we all have differences. And that's one of the beautiful things about group is we learn to focus on the big things and what draws us together in our connection with each other, even beyond the differences. So, yeah, it gets a little uncomfortable. But here's what I want you to know. Like, you don't have to believe the same things as everybody else in your group. You don't have to believe the same things that we do here at the church. You don't even have to believe in Jesus. Like, you can get into a group, even if you don't, even if you don't follow Jesus, you, you jump into a group and bring all your hurts, your frustrations, your fears, your, your wounds, your weaknesses. You bring it all. You bring your questions, your doubts, your skepticism. God's not afraid of that. We're not afraid of that. And we invite you to explore that with us. You can bring all those differences. And I think even through all those differences, you're still going to find out that getting in the right group is going to change your life. And, and if you're afraid it'll be too uncomfortable, then my guess is you're probably too comfortable. Because what I've learned over the years is that spiritual growth begins with discomfort. Spiritual growth begins with discomfort. It begins when we say, I'm too comfortable with the distance between me and my Savior. I'm too comfortable with the distance between me and other people. I'm too comfortable with the amount of sin in my life. And so we need to disrupt that. And we need to lean into uncomfortable. And will a group be uncomfortable? Yeah. Yeah, gloriously, marvelously, beautifully, sacredly uncomfortable. Friend, God created you for community, for a laylon. And the right community, it'll change your life. I've seen the power of it firsthand. I have seen what God will do through groups. I've seen friendships forged for life. And it doesn't mean that every group goes perfectly and all these things happen in every group. But I've seen God do really awesome things through groups. I've seen marriages saved because a group has rallied around. I've seen addiction beaten because a group has held accountability and helped that person navigate through addiction. I've seen long-anticipated impossible pregnancies celebrated when they came. I've seen groups mourn together. I have seen unbelievable compassion from groups. And I've seen beautiful celebration and the hope of the resurrection to come. I've watched group members baptize other group members. I have watched groups kick the consumerist, self-centered American way of life and selflessly and sacrificially serve together and say those are their best memories. I have watched group members give up vacation time and thousands of dollars to fly to a different state to keep vigil at the bedside of a group member hospitalized there. 
praying for, watching over, reading scripture, just being with to help nurse that person back to help for months. I've got more stories than we got time for. Mama told one more anyway. Two years ago, my family and I moved to the city for me to take this position here. New city, new state, new job, new rhythm of life, new school, new house, new everything, new friend groups, new, everything was new. And there's a lot of excitement in that, but you know also with all the newness comes a lot of the familiar, the familiar struggles and fears and challenges when everything is new. Disrupting life for the entire family, for my wife, because all that stuff is just... And so early on, we jumped in a group. That group has helped make this church and this city feel like home. That group has loved my family and me in awesome ways. They've rallied around us and put their arms on us and grieved with us and mourned with us at the loss of family members. They have celebrated with us and laughed with us and they have helped send kids to college and help raise up new kids. And We have shared meals and prayers and frustrations and doubts and worries and about a billion text messages. My group texts all the time. And my meme game is way stronger because dude's my group. I'll just say that. But here's the most beautiful part. I walk a lot closer with Jesus because of that group. Regardless of the position I'm in, I need a group. You need a group. God made us for groups. He designed us for a lay-long. Not to be alone, but to be with one another. Wouldn't it be awesome if everyone in our church experienced that level of community? Wouldn't it be awesome if everybody who walked in here for the first time was welcomed into an alone kind of group? Wouldn't it be awesome if that kind of grouping, that kind of community began to invade the community around us? And just go head to head with what the world offers of hopelessness and despair. And that's what God wants for us. That's what God wants for you. That's what I want for you. So I want to invite you to get into a group tonight. You're going to hear about this in a moment from my buddy Mark. You're going to hear about group building. Which is happening tonight. It's a perfect opportunity for you to come and get in a group for you to begin the Alelon community. And maybe you grouped for a while and you had a weird experience. Like, I don't know, try it again. Don't give up on it. And maybe you're like, I don't know, man, I've got stuff going on tonight. Reorient your schedule. Come to this. It's worth it. You need Alelon. And maybe you can't. Maybe what's in your schedule is just set in stone. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. I'm going to encourage you to fill out the thing, hand it and say, hey man, I can't make it tonight, but I'm interested. I need to have a conversation this week about getting in a group. And maybe you've got skepticism and doubts for like, I don't know if group is for me. You know, those things Fitz mentioned, and I got my own issues beyond those. I don't know about a group. Listen, you can fill out one of the cards, tear it off, hand it to us and say, I really don't think I need to be in a group. I don't want to, but I'm willing to have a conversation to see what God might be up to. And I'd love to meet with you for that. Grouping has been one of the things that has propelled my faith and the faith of so many others forward throughout our lives. Man, I don't want you to miss out on that. Let's pray. God, today in this moment, we pray that we would practice immediate obedience. God, that you would give those who are not in the alone kind of group the courage to step forward and say, I want that. I want to be part of that past fears and worries and anxieties and all the weirdness that comes from connecting with new people. God, would you give them the courage to say, I'm going to give it a try. 
Because God, what you have for us in this community, this one anothering, Jesus-following community, God, it's such a beautiful life. We thank you, Jesus, that you've invited us to salvation through you. But you've also invited us into kingdom purpose and kingdom community with a brand new life in you. God, may we all experience that. And may it be a bright, shining light to a dark, dark world. And we pray this, that you would get the glory and that we would live in all the joy of living in a lay alone with you and one another. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen.